today on Ag News Daily. So we, we talk about a lot of topics because really, from a banking standpoint, we have to pay attention to a lot of topics. Uh, it's, it's always interesting from my part of the world, being that we're a national organization and, and represent banks of all shapes and sizes. Good afternoon and happy Wednesday from the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr joined here with Delaney Howell. And it has been a long week. It does not feel like a Wednesday afternoon, Delaney. Oh, Ashton, I tell you what, it has been a long week already. And it is only Wednesday. And I mean, today has been an especially long day for you. You've had some struggles riding the struggle bus. Yeah, not me. People I've been working with, like tech people I've been working with that don't know. I, I just, yeah, I'm just going to leave it alone. We won't get into it. We no, we don't need to do that. <laughs> but what we can get into is some news. And you said that you had a, a good chunk to talk about. Yes, so I certainly do. I will. I'll kick things off here with a little bit of trade relationship news that's going on this week. We're seeing an in-person summit in North America, which is the first time it's happened just specifically here for North American leaders since 2016. And that's going to be happening. I think I said this week. I'm sorry. I meant to say next week, November 18th at the White House between President Biden, Mexican President Andres Abrador and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. We're also seeing a virtual summit between Biden and Xi Jinping is also expected for some time next week. And it sounds like Biden is also planning a virtual summit of democracies for early December. So there's not a ton of news yet coming out about that. But trade is expected, of course, to be one of their top discussion points, Ashton. So we may or may not see something, especially with the virtual summit between the U.S. and China. We may see some trade news uh, that could move the markets next week. It's hard to say for sure, but certainly on the horizon. Well, Delaney, I have some interesting news here. Really not some interesting news, some interesting numbers, I should say, when it comes to ag labor. When we've been talking about the ag labor issue, one thing that kind of comes up, of course, is immigration issues, because there has been a ton of people talking about how the H-2A visa program um, was kind of hard to operate with the shortage of laborers and, you know, this, that, the other. There's been a ton of conversation when it comes to immigration reform, talking about ag labor. And interestingly enough, the Labor Department said that they approved 317,619 seasonal guest workers during the fiscal year that just ended on September 30th. And that's up from 15% a year earlier. And the majority of these was from the H-2A visa program. They anticipated about 300,000 seasonal workers, but um, we hit over that mark by about 18,000 folks. So, I mean, it was some, some good news there. Of course, we're still in need when it comes to labor across the board. But, you know, that's a ton of people yeah. coming to us for work. Well, I have a little bit of, I don't know if you want to call it an update, but maybe just a little color to add into this because seasonal workers do account for a large portion of our labor force. But here's another interesting statistic. This has nothing to do with agriculture. I just read it today and thought it was interesting because as you look at labor issues we're having right now, a large portion of that is obviously tied to the pandemic and not being able to get folks in and out of countries. But another big component of that, especially here in the United States, or really only here in the United States, 
is the generational shift we're seeing right now between baby boomers retiring and folks in the Gen X and millennial era uh, becoming those that are the primary workforce. And because there are so many baby boomers like that era from about 1945, 1950 until about 1965, 1970, there's a large portion of our population that live or are aged in that span, Ashton. And so most they're saying, I want to say like 95% of all baby boomers are expected to be retired by 2023. So that's a large portion of our workforce that is literally going into retirement. And according to some economists is part of the reason that the finger can be pointed to having less labor in the workforce. I thought that was just a little interesting tidbit to share. It is very interesting. And I think all of my, I know actually all of my grandparents are retired now. They, the last one just retired um, last year, I believe. And then my parents are already talking about what their retirement's going to look like and those kinds of things. So it's super weird because I have to be put into the system when it comes to, you know, their retirement and all those kinds of things. So I feel like I'm not old enough to be doing that, but I also feel like I'm not old enough to be entering the real workforce in a couple of short months. So super crazy stuff going on. Yeah, it certainly is. But um, I tell you what, Ashton, I also wanted to touch on a few other pieces of news here. You mentioned the infrastructure package that was passed by the House and, of course, earlier on by the Senate earlier or late last week, I should say. And I believe you mentioned that about $550 billion is earmarked for new spending that will take place over the next five years. But in total, this infrastructure package is about $1.2 $1.2 trillion. A lot of that, I can't remember who I was chatting with the other day. Oh, it was Ed Elfman, who we haven't played yet on the podcast. But, you know, he mentioned in his interview, um, are we airing that today, Ash? And I got to be honest, I don't know our content calendar. Yes, we are. Okay, perfect. Well, he's, I won't steal too much of his thunder, but, you know, he mentioned that a lot of that new dollar funding is going towards agricultural infrastructure like roads, bridges, and most importantly, rural broadband. So a big portion, that $550 billion, is mostly earmarked towards agricultural, agriculturally related dollars spent. I can hardly say that. It was a tongue twister for me. I'm glad that you kind of had some clarification there, Delaney, because I cut it out, but you and I kind of went back and forth on this you know, trillion dollar package. And I was talking about, you know, the 550 billion. So there was kind of some weird verbiage going on in some different articles. So I got to admit, I was a little bit confused. So I'm glad that we have that cleared up, not only for me, but for our audience as well. But I want to kick things over and talk about weather. But this time talking about China as they have seen record snowfall. And of course, it's going to cause some delays when it comes to shipping and those kinds of things. Um, So I've just read a couple of different stories talking about um, how they're urging some of their markets and grocery stores to lower some prices of their vegetables while they are trying to get um, supplies in there and make sure that uh, their citizens are taken care of. Don't really have a whole lot of information. I mean, they just got a snowstorm, record snowfall. So I just thought that was um, just a little update coming from China. I don't really have a weather update coming from the U.S. or really anywhere else, though, Delaney. What about you? I actually do have a weather update coming to us that is expected this weekend heading into, well, heading into the weekend, I should say, but a winter storm watch has been issued for parts of eastern South Dakota 
and could see as much as two to four inches with winds as high as 50 miles per hour. So that is going to be a little chilly there. Uh, In the meantime, the Southern Plains, besides the Southern Plains, your part of Texas, the Texas Panhandle, is going to get some below freezing winter weather this weekend. So you might want to be bundled up at home. Here I am not knowing what's going on in my neck of the woods, but you're telling me it's going to be freezing. Maybe I should actually pay attention to my weather app, but I'm definitely not excited for that. This is our one of our last home football games this weekend, so I'm really going to have to bundle up. It is going to be chilly. So yes, do do bundle up, Ashton. Well, Delaney, I just have one more thing to kind of talk about here. And I know that we talked about the Biden administration's um, COVID vaccination order for all companies with more than 100 employees, employees, excuse me, I couldn't enunciate that correctly. Um, But I wanted to just kind of talk about the give and take here, because we're seeing um, kind of both sides of the story. There's some acceptance. There's, you know, people, of course, objecting to this. So just kind of doing the conversation here. But I want to add that OSHA issued the emergency temporary standard rule on November 4th, talking about the vaccine. And the Biden administration's mandate was stopped at least temporarily Friday in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, where Texas and Mississippi joined several businesses to challenge this mandate. That court issued a stay preventing the mandate from taking effect. So, I mean, we're really deep into the pandemic. I don't even know if we're considered that we're still in the pandemic, Delaney, but pretty deep in here. Um, We've had the vaccines for a while now, and we're still seeing conversation about that. If people are going to get vaccinated for the workplace, if they're not going to get vaccinated for the workplace, but I'm starting to wonder if we're going to see a little bit more push to get vaccinated from the administration or any other, you know, uh, force like OSHA. Well, we certainly could, but I think we will continue to see people responding to that with uh, lawsuits and other political actions. So it's going to be a little hairy here, I'd say. But, you know, at some point, I'm sure we'll see some sort of hopefully normalcy that kind of evens things out here. It's just hard to say when that happens. But Ashton, I have just one other piece of news here before we chat markets, and that's related to the dairy industry. Dairy cow numbers are down about 85,000 heads since their peak back in May. This is the largest four-month decline since 2009, and that has been a large contributor to why we've seen dairy prices remain at these elevated prices. We've also seen a large number of cow state numbers at their lowest levels since December of 2020, while we're watching dairy cull cow slaughter numbers up about 48,500 head since this same period a year ago. So rising input costs, they're saying, are attributing to a lot of this decline. Corn is up about 29% from a year ago, which, you know, we continue to watch that market rally. And overall feed costs are really pointing to producers not being able to afford to keep as many head on feed and uh, milking them out. And so in the meantime, we're seeing that really shrink the dairy industry, good, bad, or otherwise. I don't really have an opinion on it, just reporting the facts. Well, Delaney, hopefully you can also report the facts when it comes to the markets today. What do you say we hop over there and take a look? Let's do it, Ashton, because 
After yesterday's skyrocket higher, we certainly saw some strength continue into today's market reaction. As we're continuing to see how the markets are trying to find their footing after yesterday's WASD report. Today, the December corn contract closed up 14 and a half cents to close the day out at 569 and a quarter. The March up 14 and a half as well, ending the day at 578 and three quarters. Soybeans today put on slight moves to the upside as the January contract added four and three quarters cents, closing the day out at 1216 and three quarters. The November up three and a half cents, ending the day at 1224 and a quarter. Chicago wheat significant moves today with the December Chicago contract adding 24 and a half cents, closing at 8.03. The March up 24 and three quarter cents, closing at 8.15 on the nose. Hopping over into the livestock pits, we saw some mixed trade today across the cattle complex. December live cattle shed 20 cents today to close at 132. The February up 12 and a half cents, closing the day out at 136.82 and a half. Feeder cattle saw mostly weakness today in the front month contracts as the January contract shed 175, closing the day out at 158.05. The March down $1.45, ending the day at 159 bucks. And in the lean hog markets, strength today is the December contract added. Three quarters to close at 75.70. The February up 57.5 cents, closing the day at 79.32 and a half. And lastly, wrapping things up here with the class three dairy milk futures. December today shed four pennies, closing at 18.07. The January down a dime, ending the day at 18.35. Ashton, let's turn it over to our conversation with Ed Elfman to chat banking and rural America policy. Welcome for chatting finance and the health of rural America today with Ed Elfman, Senior Vice President of Ag and Rural Banking Policy for the American Banking Association. Ed, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being on. So, Ed, your title is a lengthy one. Tell us what you do with that title. What's your role there with American Banking Association? Yeah, it's a uh, it's a lengthy title, partly because I have multiple things that I'm really watching and doing as as part of being with ABA. Uh, it's really a multi-tiered, multi-faceted job. Uh, there's a Capitol Hill function and component, working with the House and Senate Agriculture Committees on both the Republican and Democratic side of the aisle. Um, but then there's also a USDA component, making sure that they're doing what uh, what we need them to be doing and, and basically advocating for our members at USDA and everything from rural housing to commodity programs to the guaranteed loan programs, which are probably the most important to us. And then there's a couple non-policy sides of the world. We have an agricultural bankers conference. Uh, I help oversee that. We're working on developing more school and educational programs uh, through ABA for our bankers to really kind of advance their education and and be the best bankers they can be at the end of the day. So, like I say, it's it's a multifaceted job where there's a policy component, a, a politics component, and then running this conference and, and basically outside things for ABA. And the conference is really just right around the corner here. It's on November 14th through the 17th, so just next week. So what are some things that we might expect to see at the conference this year? Yeah, so we're we're in Cincinnati this year, uh, the Queen City, and looking forward to being there. It's, it's 
probably the furthest east we've ever had the conference. Uh, we're really trying to expand the footprint of where the conference is located, making sure that every ag banker has an opportunity to, to get to the conference by moving it around the country to different locations. The, the big thing you'll see there is a lot of discussion on the front end of things we learned about COVID and how from a banking industry, we figured out how to work through the COVID-19 pandemic and you know what's the new, what, what does banking look like going forward? What does that future look like? And then we're gonna transition pretty hard um, from talking about the last 18 months to where are we going? What does the future look like in banking? We have a few topics on the tech side of the world, uh, looking at different technologies, both on the financial side of the world and the agriculture side of the world, and what we need to be aware of as bankers. What does that future look like? Uh, or what tools are in the toolbox that we might not be using that might be available to us in the future? And then a lot of other standard updates from folks on things they're seeing in the global economy, things that we're seeing in our localized commodity or, uh, communities and, and things along those lines. And then we always cap it off with uh, Dr. Dave Cole from Virginia Tech, who's been, I think this will be his 41st conference with us. Um, so he's, uh, he's he's been a show ender for us for a long time and, and does a great job of really explaining everything going on in the ag world and things you need to be aware of as a banker. And then you mentioned a lot of different issues that you guys are going to chat about next week. So let's unpack that a little bit more. You know, you mentioned COVID. Obviously, right now we've had rising commodity prices as a whole over the past two years, really. But now we're also dealing with a lot of supply chain issues, fertilizer, increased costs. What's your outlook here for rural America when it comes to their financial stability here over the next year? Yeah, so we we talk about a lot of topics because really... From a banking standpoint, we have to pay attention to a lot of topics. Uh, it's it's always interesting from my part of the world, being that we're a national organization and and represent banks of all shapes and sizes. Uh, I, I can't, you know, we can't just focus on Iowa or or pick your favorite I state. I guess um, we we can't just focus on the southeast. Can't just focus on the west. Rather, we have to focus on everything. So that makes our conference have a lot of topics at the end of the day. But to go to your question of, of where we're going and, and what things look like, banks are well capitalized. Rural banks uh, have been doing a great job over the last few years. They've really uh, they've upped their loan volume in different areas. They, we've seen deposits tick up uh, at the community bank level. And these are all really good things to have our banks be strong in our local communities because then they can help the folks in those local communities. From an agricultural standpoint, one thing we're watching, obviously, is rising input costs, right? Land costs more. Um, we thought there, I think everybody thought there'd be a land dip at some point, and yet those prices continue to go up on land. Fertilizer continues to go up. Diesel's going to keep going up. Uh, natural gas and propane aren't cheap either. So from that side of it, it's how do we help our farmer customers work through these rising input costs? Is it making sure that you do a better job forward contracting as you sell your commodities? Should you be contracting out your inputs as they come in? Uh, try to plan out, basically plan out what your inputs are going to cost and what you're going to be able to sell things for and figure out your cost of production and go from there. I can tell you as a uh, son of a, of a farmer, we farm about 1,500 acres in central Minnesota. Uh, I'm paying attention to a lot of these things on, on two fronts, not only from our banking standpoint, but 
just being uh, making sure the family farm stays strong. And with that being the case, I, I, I think farmers have done a good job of contracting out and selling their commodities at the right time. And if you've used some of the program dollars over the last few years the right way, you should be in a pretty good cash position, which then sets everything up to work through these higher inputs for the next year or two. Now, hopefully, hopefully we see commodities, you know, our corn, soybean, wheat, and all your other favorite commodities continue to uh, stay at the pace that the inputs are going up because that makes everything a lot easier at the end of the day. So I want to go back to the policy aspect of what you do, because I've heard a little bit about the Enhancing Credit Opportunities in Rural America Act of 2021, and I got to be transparent. I haven't heard too much about it. So can you just walk us through what this piece of legislation or what this act would really do for farmers and ranchers across the nation? Yeah, so it's a little bit of a mouthful, uh, enhancing credit opportunities in rural America. So we just call it ECORA for short. Uh, ECORA is a priority issue for ABA. One of our uh, our top three to five issues here. We really want to see this happen, uh, and and here's why. At the end of the day, it's a farmer and rancher bill. It what we will do through this legislation is remove the taxation on farm real estate loans for for the lender. Okay, so essentially it becomes a pass a pass down to the the borrower that way. If you reduce the cost to put a loan together, especially on real estate, which is one of your highest cost things to have, you can then pass those savings on down to the customer. When we put an interest rate together on a bill, I mean from a thirty thousand or on a loan rather from a thirty thousand foot view, an interest rate is a combination of risk and cost to keep your lights on at the bank, right? And taxes are one of your bigger costs to keep the lights on. Well, if, if you remove the tax side of it on farm real estate loans, now we can, we can, in theory, lower those interest rates, right, on far, long-term farm debt. So essentially what we're doing through this piece of legislation is reducing the cost for banks to put together loans, therefore reducing the cost to the farmer who wants to get a real estate loan through a bank. And as we're talking policy and legislation, what's your take here on this current administration and the way that they're implementing policies for rural America? Yeah, so every administration, the first uh, first year to two years is always interesting, um, both you know, good and bad, interesting. And, and it's just because you have new folks in positions of power. You have people who might have been a level or two below during the last administration of, of the same party. Um, so as those folks come around, they're they're getting their feet under them and they're trying to do what they can. Uh, I think the big thing that we've seen from a USDA standpoint, they're really trying to figure out how to really incorporate everybody. Um, I, I don't know what other way to put it, but there were there's a long kind of history there of, of not necessarily having everybody receiving the same type of benefits and maybe being brought into the fold the way they should. So we've seen USDA really trying to fix some of that. And and that's a good thing at the end of the day, making sure that all farmers are on equal footing and making sure that they uh, they can do what they need to do and and be farmers at the end of the day, because farming is expensive and it's a, it's a hard occupation to be in. So I think the administration is doing a good job of pulling some of those things together. Um, we've been working with them on things like the guaranteed loan programs 
trying to make sure that those continue to stay strong at USDA. Uh, we're also seeing some expansion and, and looking at the rural development loan programs and how those can be enhanced or, or modified positively uh, to make sure that really those dollars are leveraged out to help as many people as possible. And I will say the other thing, uh, big policy-wise, we saw infrastructure move last week. The big thing in the infrastructure bill, outside of building bridges and roads and helping rivers so we can move commodities uh, better, is the rural broadband component. Uh, there's a big chunk of money, I believe it's $40 billion for rural broadband. That's a big deal. Um, and that's going to be very helpful because for our banking communities, or our banking folks, not only do we want to see our customers have good access to the internet and all those things because it increases educational opportunities, increases business opportunities. Selfishly, from a banking standpoint, if you're in a small town somewhere in the middle of America and you don't have internet access, you're at a competitive disadvantage as a bank. So having rural broadband and good internet access, it, it helps us as well. It's, you know, uh, a rising tide lifts all boats, if you will. Um, so from a banking standpoint, we're happy to really see broadband moving because it's going to open up some opportunities for our institutions as well. Well, I wish we had a little bit more time to kind of talk about what's really going on in the banking industry and a little bit more about ABA, but we're running out of time here. So if our audience wants to learn a little bit more about what ABA is doing or anything like that, where can they find American Bankers online? Best place to find us is aba.com backslash ag banking. On that website, we have a lot of information that you can find on different things we're working on and and different policy areas. And I think the biggest thing for folks is they'd be surprised how involved bankers are in ag and rural America. But at the end of the day, we're in these small towns and we want to make sure that everybody succeeds there because that honestly helps us succeed as well. A uh, couple stats for you to think about from the ag banking world. There's just over 5,000 banks in the United States. 80% of them have ag in their portfolio in some way, shape, or form. Uh, jokingly, I say it goes from you know a horse farm in the Hamptons all the way to the, the largest farms in America. Uh, we have a full spectrum and range of, of folks involved. And on top of that, about a third of the banks in the United States are considered farm banks by definition. So 15 to 16% of their portfolio is in agriculture. That's a significant chunk of our industry that cares about agriculture is involved in agriculture every day. And frankly, we're in these small towns. Um, a lot of, a lot of small towns you go to the corner of Maine and division streets is usually a brick building that is a community bank. And we're proud of that heritage and want to make sure our communities continue to thrive going forward. Well, we definitely appreciate you coming on today, Ed. Thanks again there for talking to us about ABA and best of luck at the conference next week. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. And uh, like I say, check out ABA.com if you're curious about the banking industry and what we're doing in agriculture. Thanks again there to Ed for coming on the podcast and chatting with us. Got to be honest, I didn't think there would be a whole lot to talk about. But like I mentioned there to Ed, I haven't been keeping up with a lot of the policy and legislation that's been going on. So I'm glad that we got him on to educate me. 
Yeah. And I got to meet at a couple of weeks ago when I was in North Dakota for the North Dakota Banking Association's annual meeting. And he was great. I didn't get to hear him speak, but chatted with him afterwards. And he had a lot of interesting things to share. He's had a lot of interesting experiences. So I'm glad we got to have him on the podcast. Absolutely, Delaney. And there never seems to be anything boring going on in the ag industry. We're always covering new, exciting things. So folks, please be sure to tune in at agnewsdaily.com for all of our interesting conversations. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.